Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. That your word deals with everyday life, the human condition, and because of that, it a lot of times deals with some pretty uncomfortable subjects. But Lord, we thank you that you give us direction, you give us commandments, you give us instruction to guide us through this earthly life. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your death and resurrection that breathes life and infiltrates every single part of our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our ears and open our hearts to hear what you have for us this morning, that it may be buried deep within us and bear fruit in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been going through this series and this letter of 1 Corinthians, and as we've seen lately, the Apostle Paul is a big proponent of breathing life and hope into earthly states that the surrounding culture saw as inferior. Not simply for those statuses' sakes, but to show the hope and spiritual freedom that faith in Jesus brings. Paul really wanted to show believers what finding their identity as a child of God really looked like, especially in a pragmatic sense. In a world filled with oppression, Paul was bringing the hope and light that only the gospel of Jesus Christ could bring. And it's the same hope and light that only Jesus Christ can bring us today. We've spent the last couple of weeks talking about Paul. Uh, Paul's instruction to both single people and married people that if they were single when they came to put their faith in Jesus, they should at least look at the possibility that God may be calling them to a lifelong dedication to singleness and celibacy. Why? With an undistracted focus on building God's kingdom. That would be the purpose of that. If they were married when they came to faith in Jesus, even if their spouse remains an unbeliever, they should not seek divorce. Both were good places to be, as Paul was writing this letter. Hidden in these examples of Paul's overall point of living according to the marital state you were in when God called you to faith in Jesus are two more examples of this general principle. The first has to do with whether or not one was circumcised, i.e. Jewish, when they came to faith in Jesus, or uncircumcised, i.e. Gentile, when they came to Jesus. The second has to do with whether or not one was enslaved or free when they came to faith in Jesus. The first example is a little bit easier to handle. That's what we'll cover first. The second example is what we're going to focus most of our time on this morning. And again, this is another involved and tough message, but one I want to equip us with that, so that we know about, especially as we're having conversations with other people, about Christianity, about the Bible. So the first point that we come to as we work our way through this passage here, 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24, is the earthly appearance. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 17. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn there. I, I want us all to see this together. It's in the New Testament. If you're having trouble finding it, just look it up in the table of contents. There's no shame in that. Uh, so 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. This is what we read. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. 
This verse sums up what Paul just talked about in regards to marital status, which I just reviewed, which we spent a few weeks on. You'll see this principle repeated first here in verse 17. Then you're going to see it again following our second example, which we'll get into in a second. And then after, again, after our third example. So to our second example here, uh, verses 18 through 20. We read, Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be called, he is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must walk in that condition in which he was called. There you see that statement again, verse 20. It's repeated. There was apparently, you might say, if you were circumcised, how do you become uncircumcised? Well, there was apparently a minor surgery uh, back in this time period where a circumcised Jewish male in antiquity, he could have this minor surgery that would make him look uncircumcised and therefore more accepted by the surrounding Gentile world. This topic may have been another question that the Corinthians asked Paul in that previous letter we already talked about. Paul says, don't cave to peer pressure uh, with this. Your physical appearance is meaningless when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. He doesn't care if you're circumcised or uncircumcised, and neither should you. Don't focus on your physical appearance or what other people think about your physical appearance. Don't focus on that at all. Only focus on whether or not you're keeping the commandments of God. That's what we're to be focused on. In other words, if one was Jewish and circumcised when they put their faith in Jesus as their Messiah, they shouldn't seek to look Gentile. And if one was Gentile and uncircumcised when they put their faith in Jesus, they shouldn't seek to look Jewish. Paul was telling them to stay the way they were when God called them to put their faith in Jesus. The same lesson can be extended to us today. Our focus as believers in Jesus is not to be on our physical appearance, but on keeping the commandments of God. Yes, we should treat our physical bodies as well as we can as we serve him and have them be in, in as best shape as possible uh, so we can continue the work of, of God as temples of the Holy Spirit. But our focus should be on building the kingdom of God and living for him not just on our physical appearance. So we talked about the, Paul getting into the earthly appearance. You might have thought, whoa, we barely spent any time on that. And that's, that's the point. Uh, we're going to spend most, most of our time this morning on earthly status, the status that we're in when Jesus calls us to faith in him. Whenever a believer in Jesus, and this gets into a, this, this gets into a much more difficult subject here. If you've read further on in our, what we're going to cover this morning, you'll see why this, is all, why this is going to be difficult today. Whenever a believer in Jesus wants to point something out from Scripture, if you're having a conversation with somebody else, what is one of the arguments from somebody who is critical of the Bible that always gets thrown in your face? They always throw the argument that the Bible is pro-slavery. They always throw that in your face, right? Mainly how they perceive how the Bible handles it, how, how the Bible handles the subject. As with many other topics, the Bible's stance on slavery is usually from passages ripped out of context by critics who are quick to point out specific verses while ignoring the surrounding subject matter or willfully neglecting to do sufficient research. 
What I want to do this morning is as sensitively as I can explain truthfully what the Bible says on the topic so we can be equipped to explain, first of all, understand it ourselves, but then explain what it actually says to those we know who simply want to throw the whole book out the window based on what they think they know. The subject of slavery in the Bible is not a one-point subject, as many critics of the Bible would want anyone to believe. Instead, it ranges with the context, and you'll see what I mean. Once we see the subject as a whole, we can see the heart of God as it relates to humans, no matter what social status they are. Critics are quick to, quick to point out these verses to paint the picture that the Bible condones and even promotes the topic of slavery. In the Old Testament law, we read, if a man strikes his male or female slave with a rod and he dies at his hand, he shall be punished. If, however, he survives a day or two, no vengeance shall be taking, taken, for he is his property. That leaves a bad taste in our mouths when we read that, doesn't it? This seems to condone the permission of violence towards somebody who is enslaved, even so much so as up to the point of killing them. We also read further on, as for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may acquire male and female slaves from the pagan nations that are around you. Wait, what? You may even bequeath them to your sons after you to receive as a possession. You can use them as permanent slaves. Now these verses indicate that as long as a slave wasn't a fellow Israelite, slaves from other nations could be held permanently. Again, that leaves a bad taste in our mouths. In the New Testament, Paul writes to the Christian slaves in Ephesus, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. This seems to say that slaves are to be obedient and respectful to their masters with fear and trembling, no matter what their masters do to them. Lastly, in our passage this morning, we, we, we'll get into, were you called while a slave, Paul says to the, to the believers in, in Corinth. Do not worry about it. And then he goes on to say, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. That's what we'll read in a little bit. In other words, it seems like Paul is telling slaves to just deal with it and to not seek any other way of life. This paints a very dark picture of, of what the Bible is saying here. But we're, we're going to come back to Paul's point here. But in order to see it fully, we need to see God's heart when it comes to people who are enslaved by other people. Just simply taking each of these verses out of context, it would be pretty easy to paint the picture that the Bible condones slavery. Am I right? It would be pretty easy to paint that picture. And that's why it's very easy for somebody to throw that in our face. But we're going to take each of these passages and look at them a little deeper and see what the Bible says as a whole and what the Bible's actually saying here. Firstly, we need to see and know that even the concept of slavery is not something that God created. That's very important. Even the concept of slavery itself is not something God created. When God created man and woman, he created them in his image. That's what we read in scripture. As reflections 
and representatives of him. Period. That's it. There were no social structures or concept of superiority or inferiority when it came to humans. Even Eve was made out of Adam's rib, a move to symbolize that she was equal in worth to him. Any form of slavery was a cultural construct created by sinful humanity, inflicted on each other, and that devastatingly even exists today. As such, knowing that slavery was and is a human construct, God did not create slavery at any point, and he most certainly did not create it in the law he gave to Moses. In fact, most of the instruction we see in the Old Testament law that seems to permit slavery is not what we think it might be saying. Most of the instruction in the Old Testament law had to do with Israelites who were so destitute they had to sell themselves or other family members into slavery to pay off debt. Another term for that would be indentured servitude. Because of this, when you come across a commandment in the Old Testament law having to do with slavery, it's most likely in reference to that practice. Israelites in indentured servitude to another Israelite. Even so, when an Israelite had to sell him or herself into what was really indentured servitude, even though the word slavery is used, it was never meant to be permanent. If an impoverished Israelite was too indebted to a fellow Israelite, he could sell himself into servitude with who was now his employer to work off that debt. A relative of that indebted Israelite could also redeem him by paying off the rest of that man's debt. Regardless of time served, every six years, that debt was to be forgiven and that indebted Israelite to be set free. That was, that was what the practice was supposed to be. Every six years, they were supposed to go free. Furthermore, because of the other laws in connection with debt, indentured servitude was the last resort. Much more common was that indebted Israelites were able to get out from under their debt due to God's other merciful laws when it came to, to paying off debt. But if there was absolutely no other recourse for an extremely impoverished Israelite, God made a concession for indentured servitude, but with strict limits on that in order to preserve the dignity of the one forced to sell himself into indentured servitude. We read in Exodus 21, uh, 2, If you buy a Hebrew slave, he may serve you for no more than six years. Set him free in the seventh year, and he will owe you nothing for his freedom. And furthermore, in Leviticus 25, we read, If one of your fellow Israelites falls into poverty and is forced to sell himself to you, do not treat him as a slave. Treat him instead as a hired worker or as a temporary resident who lives with you, and he will serve you only until the year of Jubilee. At that time, he and his children will no longer be obligated to you, and they will return to their clans and go back to the land originally allotted to their ancestors. This was why. The people of Israel are my servants. This is God speaking. The people of Israel are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. So they must never be sold as slaves. Show your fear of God by not treating them harshly. 
Because all of Israel, the whole nation, was once enslaved in Egypt, God would not permit his people to experience that type of bondage at the hands of each other. Now, when it comes to Exodus 20, 21, 20 through 21, there is a balance that needs to be seen here. We know that God created all of humanity in his image. And since any form of slavery is a human construct, because God knew humanity's sinfulness, he puts limits on that sin. Because of humanity's sinfulness, God makes a concession to allow for some physical discipline on even those Israelites who sold themselves into indentured servitude and were being especially unruly and uncooperative. However, and this is a big however, God put strict limits on the amount of physical discipline that could be enacted. If a master beat his slave so badly that the slave died as a result, the punishment was left open-ended as a point. You see that in verse 20. The punishment was left open-ended as a point. That included death. That included the the death penalty. Punishment by death was also on the table. It was to scare those masters into treating their slaves with the same dignity that God treated them. Even if the physical discipline did not result in death, there were still strong limits placed on the amount allowed. We read, if a man hits his male or female slave in the eye and the eye is blinded, he must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. And if a man knocks out the tooth of his male or female slave, he must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. Strict limits. Even though the indentured servant servant was in the employment of his master and could be physically disciplined if they refused to do the work that was required of them that they entered into a contract with to pay off the debt they owed to their master, that person still had basic human rights. Any physical impairment, even the loss of one tooth, resulted in their automatic freedom. Their debt was forgiven and they were allowed to go free. The pointing out of these basic human rights in the Old Testament law is huge, especially in that time period that the law was being given. When people were captured in war and treated like cattle by other pagan nations, God's mercy towards his people placed strict limitations on the human construct of indentured servitude in order to preserve humanity made in his image. Now what about the next verses in Leviticus 25 about the apparent permission to acquire slaves from other nations and that they could be held permanently? This seems like a double standard, doesn't it? When it comes to Israelite servants and acquiring slaves from other nations. And it seems ethnically superior on the part of Israel, too. Whereas an indentured servant had to be released after six years, these verses outright say that any other slave from any other people group could be enslaved indefinitely. In order to understand these verses, though, we also need to understand something else very important to the Old Testament law. Many critics are also quick to point out Deuteronomy 20, 10 through 11, which says, when you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. If it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. 
This seems to allow for Israel to take citizens of pagan cities and force them to become their slaves as captives of war. Doesn't that seem what, what that's saying? However, as has been noted by, by biblical scholars, these verses are not allowing for that practice as was common among other people groups. God is not allowing for that practice here. What these verses are allowing for is for certain pagan cities not located within the boundaries of the promised land to make a deal of peace with Israel and not be completely destroyed. Remember, if you look in the Old Testament, anybody who was in those boundaries was destroyed. If you were outside those boundaries, you could take a peace deal with Israel and you could be spared and allowed to remain as a vassal state under the nation of Israel's authority. The city, now as a vassal state, would perform hard labor and give the fruits of that labor to Israel as tribute. Do you see the big difference there between what critics say this verse is saying and what it actually is saying? So when Leviticus 25.44 says, you may acquire male and female slaves from the pagan nations that are around you, these are not war captives as many critics will claim they are. This portion of these verses, verses should be better translated. You may purchase male and female slaves from among the nations around you. Now, this is why this is important. This may not seem to make much of a difference here. But once we know the setting into which these laws are allowing practices, we have a much better understanding of these verses. You'll notice that the New Living Translation uses the English word purchase. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, this word in and of itself makes this practice very, very rare in Israel to begin with. Makes this very, very rare in Israel. In fact, only available to those who were in royalty or the uppermost echelons of society. If a slave was purchased by one of these mucho rich Israelites, it was usually because this person had a special skill, such as reading, writing or translating uh, translating and were thus treated very well there was nothing ethnic or racial about this type of foreign slavery it was only based on the person's training in a special skill most often and this is what is even more important this purchase was not from a slave trader or a foreign master or some kind of market the per this person usually would sell himself into this type of slavery in connection with his trained skill. Again, very similar to the Israelite practice of indentured servitude. Lastly, God condemned brutality towards any non-Israelite living among them, which extended to the non-Israelite slave as well. He commanded, so you too must show love to foreigners, for you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. That, ex that extended to any person didn't matter what their social status was. When it comes to God's law in the Old Testament, we see a much different picture when it comes to the Bible's treatment of slavery than critics would have anyone believe. I hope we've all seen that so far. Most of the laws dealing with slavery are actually dealing with Israelite indentured servitude as a last resort. And even so, those servants' basic human rights are retained as being made in the image of God and thus were to go free after six years. The one mention of non-Israelite slaves within its context gives us the understanding of a person 
who has been trained in a highly sought-after skill, who sells himself into service in connection with that skill and is thus treated well. We see God's mercy on putting strict limits on the types of slavery even conceded to as a sinful human construct. God's treatment of it is highly different, especially in comparison with how a lot of the surrounding people groups treated it. In addition, Deuteronomy 23 commands Israel to harbor escaped slaves from other pagan nations seeking refuge with them, to let them live in Israel, and to not abuse them. Now we turn to the New Testament's treatment of slavery. And this is a, this is a somewhat different world thousands of years later. As was common among the people groups surrounding Israel, slavery of every form was common in the Greco-Roman world into which Paul wrote. People captured from Rome's wars were brought back to the empire to be sold as slaves in horrible mining conditions as well as household slaves. Household slaves were the most common slaves in the Roman world and were usually treated the best in that status. As one looks at the context of Paul's words on this topic, he only addresses these household-type slaves. Now keep that in mind, especially as we circle back to our passage this morning. What is very important to know as we look at Paul's words on this topic is that every single slave revolt to the point of Paul's writing these letters was brutally crushed by the Roman Empire. Under Roman law, if a master was killed by a slave, all the other slaves in that household were killed as a punishment. In addition, as noted by one biblical scholar, under Roman law, the punishment was severe for anyone who knowingly harbored a runaway. What Paul could do in that world, what Paul could do was offer people in this status hope. That's what he could do. Hope that could only come from a relationship with Jesus. As such, Paul doesn't discuss the topic of the abolition of slavery, but if one studied his letters, they would no doubt see that Paul would have been a proponent of its abolition. Ever the pragmatic one, Paul instead gives instruction and hope to those in this earthly state of life. With all that said, yes, Paul writes to people enslaved in Ephesus, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. But notice how Paul addresses their masters. How does he refer to them? Whoops. According to the flesh. That's how he refers to them. Notice that. Again, Paul understood what the Old Testament said about slavery and knew that this was not a God-created ordinance. As such, he described it as it was, a human construct according to the flesh. This, in and of itself, discredits any claim that God supports slavery since he didn't even create it to begin with. Paul instructs slaves to be obedient to their masters, but why? Not to simply accept human slavery and their place in it. That is not why at all. Not at all. They were to be obedient to their masters, not for their masters' sake, 
but it breathed new life and hope into their obedience. And what it did is it lifted it to a higher calling. They weren't simply serving their masters because they were somehow inferior. No, that was not the the way it was at all. They could be hopeful even in that status because Jesus saw them as his beloved children. And because of that, they obeyed Jesus out of love. And that was seen visibly in their respect for those who ruled over them. Do you see the new life and new calling and new purpose that's breathed into that? We see this higher calling in what Paul writes further to them. With good will, render service as to the Lord, as to Jesus, not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, because that's the one you're really serving, whether slave or free. According to Paul, it doesn't matter to Jesus whether someone is an earthly slave or a free person. No one is inferior or superior to him. He loves all, died for all, and will reward all those who put their trust in him regardless of earthly status. That is an incredibly empowering truth to someone who is in a pretty hopeless state. Amen? The gospel of Jesus Christ does that. It gives hope. It gives meaning. It gives empowerment through the Holy Spirit no matter one's earthly situation. And here's what Paul, what sets Paul's words apart from any other writer, any other philosopher that we know of before Paul. Paul is the only one in antiquity to put masters on the same level as the people that were enslaved. We know what Paul already instructed enslaved people, and then he goes on with this. He says, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he, mark my words, has no favorites. That is a strong warning if I ever saw one. The the New Testament is the only ancient work that we see that type of message and warning. Paul's the only one who writes about that. Perhaps the greatest glimpse into what the New Testament says on this topic is how Paul handles a close-to-home situation with a runaway slave he encounters and he develops a close friendship with. We find out all about this from the New Testament book of Philemon. Anyone here know what Philemon is about? Anyone know it's even in the Bible? <laughs> in Philemon, one, it's one chapter long. In the New Testament book of Philemon, we find out that while Paul is in prison, he encounters a man named Onesimus, who was a slave of a man named Philemon, who was himself also a believer in Jesus. Onesimus apparently stole some of his master's money and took off while he was running an errand for Philemon. Paul started teaching Onesimus about Jesus, and Onesimus eventually put his faith and trust in Jesus for his salvation. At that point, Paul could have very easily told Onesimus to forget about the money he stole from Philemon or just send it to him and not actually face up to what he did. But convinced of what he knew to be God's truth, Paul did not shy away from the situation. 
Instead, he tells Onesimus to return to Philemon, and he sends a letter with Onesimus, which we have preserved for us as the book of Philemon, explaining to Philemon that now that Onesimus is a believer in Jesus, there are no social constructs between them. Paul is the spiritual father of Onesimus, no matter what his previous earthly status was, and Philemon should now see Onesimus as his brother instead of his slave. Paul then seeks to persuade Philemon to free Onesimus as his spiritual brother. We don't know from the book of Philemon whether or not Philemon actually listened to Paul, but there is other New Testament evidence that he did do just that. I hope we've all seen that not one verse, and these were the worst, we'll say, not one verse from either the Old Testament law or the New Testament, if taken in its context, not one verse can be used to condone or promote the type of slavery that was devastatingly once common in our country. In fact, a lot of slave owners in the U.S. at first prohibited enslaved people from learning about Christianity. Why? Because they feared that those people would become Christians and then they would feel compelled to free them, as Paul persuaded Philemon to do. Only after time and manipulation was there a distorted, perverted version of Christianity that condoned, permitted, and sustained the slave trade in the U.S. If anything, there is only scriptural evidence that promotes believers in Jesus seeking the welfare for those in the bonds of slavery. The abolitionists of our country saw what the Bible truly said on the subject and fought for the rights and freedom of their fellow brothers and sisters. Today, we can still fight for the freedom and basic human rights we find in Scripture for our fellow brothers and sisters. Now, I bet you're wondering, are we even covering the passage that we were supposed to this morning? Now, with all of that in mind, we can see our verses dealing with this this morning start to unfold. Verse 21. This will go by pretty quickly because we already built all the background for this. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. Paul tells any slaves in Corinth, did you become a believer when you were in earthly status as a slave? Don't see yourself as inferior or see yourself as part of this human construct, always to be doomed. You don't have to worry about it because you're already seen by Jesus as his beloved child and only his beloved child. Jesus does not see social status. He only sees faith and love. You have the same eternal inheritance as someone in a higher social status. It's all the same. However, Paul does follow that up with, if you can become free in an earthly sense, go for it. That's even better. Especially household slaves had much more social mobility than even free peasants. Many could work for and buy their freedom. And Paul says, if you can do that, go for it. Do it. Again, we see Paul's heart that ideally... There was a world where there was no slavery. And if somebody could better their earthly status, they should do it. 
But even if one couldn't do that, there was much hope. Verse 22. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. This says exactly what Paul's been saying all along. That to Jesus, there is no social status. Freedmen were people who were legally free, but still remained a part of their former master's household. The freed person could look out for their former master's interests, but the difference would be they would get money for it. So here Paul is saying to the Corinthians, if you are legally a slave, you are free in Jesus' eyes. doesn't matter what your earthly status is. And even if you are legally free, you are still obedient to Jesus. Your earthly status does not matter to Jesus, only your obedience and love. Paul next connects back to what he's already explained about our earthly bodies. Once we put our faith in him, verse 23, you've seen this before. You were bought with a price. We've seen that before. We've covered that before. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Because our bodies are Jesus's, Paul commands the Corinthians to not subject themselves to earthly slavery if they can help it, both physically and spiritually. Again, we see Paul's heart. We see God's heart on this subject. As we get to verse 24, the one who was already enslaved in an earthly way when they put their faith in Jesus should not succumb to feelings of inferiority or hopelessness and if possible by their freedom. And in verse 24 we read, brethren, brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. If not possible, those already enslaved must find their identity in Christ, as it indeed was, not in their enslavement, not in that earthly identity. If a person was humanly free when they put their faith in Jesus, Paul advocated for them not to sell themselves into slavery if they could help it in every way possible. Once again, this connects to Paul's overall context of not focusing too much on one's earthly state when they come to know Jesus. Don't focus too much on your earthly status when you come to know Jesus. In Jesus, our spiritual state is all the same, no matter our earthly lives. He gives us birth, and he gives us an inheritance. The world cannot and will not do that for us. Only Jesus can and will give us worth and his inheritance. It's just one of the many great blessings we have as children of God bought with the blood of Christ. So, let us all live our lives, our earthly lives, no matter what earthly state that is, for now, for the glory of God, no matter where we are. No matter what we go through in this earthly life, no matter how badly people mistreat us, we have the Holy Spirit walking right alongside of us, strengthening us, providing for us, and emboldening us. And at the end, we will be raised when Jesus comes back for us. That is a guarantee That is a promise that we can hold on to no matter what our earthly status is. So, let us live our earthly lives in light of that, grateful 
for what Jesus offers to us beyond anything this world can throw at us or give to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, once again, a difficult passage, a difficult topic, but once again we can see the death and resurrection of Jesus breathing new life and new hope. Lord, we thank you that no matter what our earthly state is in this world, that we have hope, we have worth, we have salvation that was won for us by your death on the cross, and we have an inheritance that you rose again to give to us, waiting for us. Lord, I pray that no matter what our earthly state is, we would not feel discouraged, we would not feel inferior, but Lord, we will place all of our hope and trust in you because we know that you see us as your beloved children, loved enough to die a torturous death for us. We place all of our hope and trust in you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.